Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and you are with the Triple L team this morning, Lyle. And Lawson and Liam, what a time to be alive! <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive, that's for sure. What are you guys thankful for this morning? Oh, uh, oh, okay. I'm thankful that I saw an incredibly uh, hectic movie last night. Very exposing on some uh, some really bad Christianity that we see in our world. Um, some really profitable Christianity that we see in our world. And uh, yeah, the movie's called American Gospel. Uh, there's actually a second one that's about to come out. But yeah, this Ooh. one is called In Christ Alone, I believe that this this one's called. The first one that they made. And it's it was hectic. I, I was watching it with my sister. And we were just like, this is, this is insane. It's just like exposing bad Christianity, which is something that we like to do here on radio. But yeah, I was like, this is epic, bro. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that often I find myself too quick to defend Christianity. Mm. You know, because Christianity is my tribe. It's, you know, it's part of what I belong to. And so, you know, people will, uh, you know, jump in there and try and def- try and attack Christianity. I'm like, yeah, well, no, 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 and try and defend it. Whereas the Bible says that Christianity at the end of time is called Babylon. Mm. Yeah, we should wow. expect, Just we because should someone's expect, a Christian doesn't necessarily mean, you know. That's right. We should expect absolute corruption in Christianity at the end of time. That should be the expectation. And that's what this documentary is all about. It is. Like, it oh, is I've, I've it seen is it before. So <laughs> It's so like just exposed, bro. Like, and it's good too. It's like a, it's a, it's a good balanced, relatively balanced take on it. So, yeah, good stuff. What are, what are you guys grateful for? Uh, just quickly, I'm, I'm thankful to be back on radio, but also a little bit later today, I'm going to be uh, getting to share a little bit of my testimony with some people. So I'm pretty oh, excited for that go. too. Yes. Why are you I'm just looking up a Bible verse to go with this movie. Um, it says here, for God, the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall. Hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom to the beast um, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And this movie is kind of a part of that right there. about yeah, Just Just exposing the corruption of Christianity and laying it bare for the world to see. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Mate. Fantastic. Tell us some positively different news, guys. Positively different. Okay, remember how, like, I always do... Hey, before like- we do, um, Liam, you've got some positively different news. What are you... What, oh, you've already told us what you're doing this morning. Yeah, you're going to be yeah. doing a testimony up yeah. at school. Yeah, we've got a school down the road from, right. uh, from the studio, and I'm going to go to worship for them and uh, share a little bit of my story. Indeed. Dude, Indeed. epic. Let's Nothing go. more powerful than a testimony. Not necessarily mine. Well, I mean, to some people it might be, but if you've got your testimony, make share sure it. that you share it with people. Absolutely. You, you, Amen. Some people can only relate to you. Okay. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about how they're like, they've come up with a new formula to turn like carbon emissions into food for cows? Yes. And how this is like, again, you know, this is the good news section, but it's usually just. I kind of wonder whether we're going to get mad cow disease from it. Yeah, or just some kind of disease. If we're, if like you're eating cows that feed on. Carbon. Like literal exhaust, <laughs> like 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 exhaust fumes, like packed. I mean, into we a tried food. we tried feeding cows with meat pellets, and we got mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway. Now now we just get liver poisoning, isn't that? Anyways, so. feeding, feeding cow with cow essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that makes no sense. No, it doesn't. No. 
But check it out. So now a, a laundry detergent company, like one of the biggest ones that make all the different laundry detergents, uh, it's called Unilever, makes like Omo and all those different yes, ones. Yes. They've now come up with a system to make soap out of carbon emissions. Okay. So previously, like soap and those things are all made out of fossil fuels. Right. Right. And then, but now they're like, oh, we'll just make it out of the byproduct of fossil fuels. So when I'm camping, when I go four wheel driving and camping, like in the outback, mm-hmm. this means that I can bathe in the exhaust fumes of my four wheel drive. Is that the idea here? <laughs> no, no, no. This is like this is why Unilever, the company, exists, Lyle, so that they can make this stuff for you from your exhaust. Unless you've got one of their machines, you need. You, that's 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 why they exist. I'm kind of thinking if I look at my exhaust, I probably I probably come out pretty sooty. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you won't be clear. But again, I'm wondering. I'm okay. So like soaps and all that stuff already has fossil fuels in it. Um, and but we use them. But furthermore, like this will be like used fossil fuels that will be repurposed as soaps. And I'm like, will this have a negative effect on our health? What will that do to your skin? Exactly. This is this What is will it be absorbed through your pores? Exactly. Yeah. This is my thought, What's that going guys? to do to scientists in a million years from now when they try and carbon date us? Ooh. Oh. Oh. You know, they won't because we're going to be in heavy. Very soon. Amen, amen, amen. But essentially, yeah, this is, this actually, that's a really good thought. Like, not a million years from now, but someone like dies and like 10 years later, like they text him, like, they've got carbon in them. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it might mess with thought. forensic science when you find a skeleton and you're trying to date the skeleton to identify the person. Mm. I wonder whether that could mess with um, it's covered with carbon dating. Carbon, that's insane. But yeah, I I don't know. I was just reading this this morning. I was thinking about it. I was also thinking about the fact, you know, they got some statements here. Oh, this is a good thing because you know where it's it's sustainable and all that stuff. But if they're phasing out fossil fuels, then it's not going to be sustainable. Then it's not going to be sustainable. Like from any perspective, fossil fuels just. Letting you know, Lawson, they're never going to be phased out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that you are desperate to get rid of fossil fuels. They are here to stay. No, no, it's, it's going to happen, Lyle. <laughs> Lyle the Lord's going to come before we run out. <laughs> I think um, with with this product, I don't know, I, I don't see any potential with it for, for human consumption or f- for use on humans, but I, I think I can I can see some use for it on other things, like, like other cleaning products that don't need to be used on humans that don't affect humans. So uh, something to wash your car with. Yeah, something yeah. to wash your car. Cause no, but this is specifically like laundry soap. To wash your clothes. Yeah, to wash your clothes. But like then you Even wear Even that those could still clothes. affect, yeah. Yeah, then you wear your clothes. They like have direct contact with your skin all day, every day. So, you know, it's, it's a bit gnarly. It's a bit touchy. Anyways, yeah, yeah good. To, I, I guess we'll see how that, you know, once this gets rolled out, I guess we'll see what happens. All right. I have something to talk about that literally scared me when I, when I, I know we're doing good news this morning, but this is like, this is hectic. I, I need you guys to look at this photo. I need you to look at this photo of like the biggest moth I've ever seen in my what? life. What? Oh, I saw this. I saw like, this. This was like not okay. Alien. Oh, this was not okay. This, this. Is, this is insane. So basically uh, a school, this is found in a primary school. Oh. If I saw this as a primary ch- children, I'd like as a child. Scarred for life for I sure. Would, no, I'd be picking that thing up. It That's looks cool. Like it's a moth. Alien. All moths look like aliens. But it, moths size are aliens. Small Didn't you dog. know this? <laughs> but literally, it has a wingspan of 25 centimetres and it weighs 30 grams. Oh. That's amazing. I want one. That's, this is like the biggest moth 
I think anyone has ever seen. Nah, but there's probably. How can I grow a moth like this? What does it eat? <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I was a kid, we did um, silkworms uh-huh. and watched them turn into moths and then make more silkworms. It was <laughs> just using mulberry leaves and so forth. It was so much fun. I loved it. it was just that's actually pretty cool. It was. It was. Yeah, but were any of them thirty grams and twenty five? <laughs> no, they were about long. Twenty five millimeters. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah they were all small. But yeah, this no, but huge. 30, 250 oh. millimeters and, across. And again, they found it in the school. They were just like, you know, the students and the staff. And apparently, none of the students or staff were scared because, you know, this is a pretty common thing up in Mount Cotton in Queensland. Okay. They have lots of <laughs> wildlife there. Lots of, and when I say wildlife, I truly mean life that is wild, like really hectic insect and all this stuff. Liam comes from Queensland. Yeah, yeah Liam. You do get some interesting creatures up there. But yeah, they saw this and they were like, I mean, my brothers are up there. They're pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Go. And listening to the show this morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. <actually>. Morning, boys. <laughs> but yeah. The, the, okay, so what kind of moth is it and how often do you... Uh, where, where can I go and see one? So this is um, uh, like a giant moth. Uh, yes. That literally really? is just called a, a giant moth. I think it has another name. I'm just probably got a, it's probably got a giant wood moth. Oh. It's a giant wood moth because Original. it looks like a piece of wood. Um, also, also known as an Endoxylla cinereus. Yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Yep, one of those. Mm-hmm. It it belongs to the Cossidae Cossidia family of moths, um, and it survives only a few days as an adult. Oh, oh that's just pretty typical. Moth how big behavior. is the worm? Oh, that's true. It's probably. Really big. Ooh. Imagine, imagine, uh, imagine, imagine your garden variety, you know, blackbird or something rather that try and catches this particular moth, and the <laughs> moth is bigger than the bird. Yeah, that's the, all we're looking at here. There's it's a just... lot of birds out there that are a lot smaller that eat moths all the time. That are a lot smaller than that moth. <laughs> but yeah, bird goes to try and take the moth, and the moth turns around and is like, yeah, nah, not today. I'll take you instead. <laughs> It's like you're mine now. Sorry, it just like flips. flips I want to see one. The food Creation chain. is amazing. You I know, know when you look at the fossil record and everything was so much bigger. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that reminds me of what our world used to be like yes. Yes. back in the Garden of Eden, and one day what our world will be like in the future. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Talk about the Jesuit order. Okay, okay, let's go. Because I think that fits well with uh, this current context. <laughs> okay, so the Jesuit order, um, otherwise known as the Society of Jesus, has a history of infiltrating other Christian denominations as a part of what was called the Counter-Reformation. So, for mm. instance, one of my fav- famous, not favourite, but famous ancestors, an individual by the name of Sir Robert Southwell, it's not sorry, Sir Robert, St. Robert Southwell, St. Robert Southwell was actually caught uh, in the UK back in the day um, infiltrating the Anglican Church and he'd been posing as an Anglican priest for three years mm-hmm. as a Jesuit priest. And this was all part of their strategy to bring the Protestant churches back to Rome. And when he was caught, he was then hung, drawn and courted and, of course, later turned into a saint. So, you know, back in the day, things were pretty brutal. And you're related this, I could, to yeah, this person. I was going to no, ask the obvious not. question. You're, you're, there's like, oh, yeah, he had the same last name as me, but... He had the same last name ah, as me. Okay, yeah, all right, Lyle, well, all right. <laughs> okay, I haven't traced it back to uh, to that particular individual yet. Doesn't mean it's not there, though. Doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> 
It seems that there are two Southwell families in the UK that I've been able to establish, and uh, you've been one able of them. to. Yeah, I'm from one of them. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm from the northern one. Oh, let's go. Anyway, um, if you look at the Jesuit oath, which is still used today, mm-hmm. it states, "I do further promise and declare that, notwithstanding, I am dispensed." with to assume any religion heretical for the propagating of the Mother Church's interest. Mm. And so, uh, well, you look at the trouble that they have in Christianity today and you sort of wonder, well, why would we need to have Jesuits? We're already tearing ourselves apart quite well enough as it is. But that is a tactic and a strategy that was actually picked up in recent years by an evangelical family from New Jersey, and they have just been outed. Uh huh. So this is a story coming out of the Jerusalem Post. This evangelical uh, family uh, went to Israel as an orthodox, posing as an orthodox Jewish family. Uh, they were helped, helped there by the uh, orthodox community. They even received financial uh, support as immigrants from New Jersey. Uh, the father, his name was Michael, posed as a rabbi and a mohel and a sofer. So a mohel is somebody who uh, practices circumcision and a sofer is a scribe. That's one who translates uh, Torah scrolls, phylacteries, uh, mezuzotes, uh, which is your doorpost inscriptions and so forth. So he was he was doing all of that and this is for quite a number of years mm-hmm. Uh, the mother, they've got, uh, what, five or six children, but the mother passed away from cancer and during uh, the, the time period of her cancer, she formed a, uh, a cancer support group there. Um, she had told everybody that she was the daughter of an Auschwitz survivor mm. and um, she, so she created a support group for women with cancer. They actually did a lot of good in their community and um, now that they've been outed as being Christian missionaries... There's a lot of Jewish people that are questioning the valid validity of the bar mitzvahs and the circumcisions that have been performed by this particular individual mm. uh, because he's there posing as a rabbi, not not just as a Jewish person but as a rabbi. Uh, Amanda, when she, was, when, when she passed away, she was buried in a Jewish ceremony with all the Jewish rites mm-hmm. and some of the Jewish people are a little bit wondering about that, you know, the Orthodox Jews, why have we got a Christian person buried in the middle of our cemetery? And that's raising some questions as well. They were finally outed when their son, on several occasions, mentioned Jesus while at school and people started to do some investigation and it came out that when they traced them back through, they had actually arrived in Israel on false passports with false documentation and that they were actually Christians. That actually people have been a bit sus about them before, and there's a group over there, a non-profit group called Led uh, Bayaninun, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which monitors and informs on Christian missionaries because proselytization is illegal in Israel. And they had investigated this family, hadn't come up with anything, but, yeah, now it's all come out. So far they are remaining in Israel, they are remaining in their home, the kids are sort of staying home from school and they're keeping a low profile. But, yeah, lying for Jesus. That is so silly. I will be the first to say that that is the the single most silliest thing you could possibly do. As if God wants us to go and lie to people about what we really believe. Well, if you really believe, as the Jesuit order does, and they, they have the doctrine of the end justifies the means. Now, the problem and the danger with that doctrine is that if you can create... 
a sufficiently good enough or define for yourself a sufficiently good enough end, then any means is allowable. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, we've not seen that sort of in evangelical circles before. I don't know. Maybe that was the doctrine that they picked up somewhere along the line. But it's a bizarre doctrine. And, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. How do you go as a missionary when the Bible says, thou shalt not lie? The question poses for the, for the people in the receiving end of those uh, of the, the acts that the, the quote-unquote rabbi performed. And I guess something pops into my head. Are they still valid in the eyes of the Lord? Um, I guess in the same way that if a, that's if, right. if someone were these, baptized, these were, done, these were done with good conscience. Yeah, yeah. By people, this is their sincere belief. Yeah. Like if someone were baptized by someone that claimed to be a pastor, but in reality actually wasn't, um, is that still a baptism? Well, actually, there's a lot of people being baptized that way because if you think about uh, how many people were baptized by pastors who were sinners, mm. there you go. Many people. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, literally every single person. Exactly. Exactly but, my point right there. Oh, I, I just feel like, you know, when it comes to lying, like, and, yes. and, 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 you know, trying to kind of create a covert operation to, you know, convert people to the faith, like, how is, like, my brain is just... The Bible says we have to be known and read... Yes, by all, all men. men. Yes. Dude, ah, oh, it's just... Anyway. What were they expecting to happen? Oh, I don't know. It's, Silly it's, guys. Hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, give us uh, a call. If you, if you think there's some justification for it, um, or there's a way of justifying it, let us know. Text us. Someone was told me, if you're ever questioning what you need to do for God, like if you're like, oh, if I do this, does this make it right? Or if I do it this way, does that make it right? Maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Like... That's a, that's a pretty solid it's very advice. Good, it's very good advice. Very good advice right there. Okay, so uh, very quickly, another story coming out. I uh, do want to cover this one. It's been around for a couple of days now, but the Uniting Church in Australia, whose membership has been absolutely crashing astronomically, has been selling off church properties at an accelerating rate. Uh, their new conference uh, division president uh, here in Australia has decided to bring that to an end and is rather making all those properties available to church planters for a rental cost of any denomination, rental cost one dollar a year. Ooh. Sign Wait. me up. Wait, we we but okay. So so if there is a church, a uniting church property that is not being used, and let's face it, we drive past them all the time. If you're a church planter with a vision, you can have it for a dollar a year plus costs. We were just like my church was just hiring a uniting church as like for church planning. Yes, but now we're on campus, you know, and it's costing you more than what it would be if you'd have stayed in the uniting church. Anyway, that's uh, the new proposal that's come out, so start uh, lining up, getting your plans together. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Moving on to our interview of the day, joining us on the phone this morning is Eliza Ma, our resident historian to talk about uh, history and history in Australia. Um, Eliza, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. Fantastic to be on. Now, Eliza, I understand, I'm actually really excited about the uh, individual that we're going to be talking about today mm-hmm. because it involves technology that I really, <laughs> really like. So, ah. yes, let's talk about it. Who are we talking about? Yes. So today we're talking about John Flynn. Uh, we're talking about Reverend John Flynn. He was a Presbyterian minister. He was born in 1880 and he founded the Flying Doctor. The Flying Doctor Service. He founded service. the Australian Inland Mission. 
Okay, so here you've got a, uh, a, a essentially a church pastor um, mm-hmm. who is into aviation. Mm-hmm. That's right. How far it back does the- this go? When does the flying doctor service in Australia begin? It begins in 1928. So he had the idea in 1911, but then the First World War came along and everyone was much too busy um, investing in other things and trying to get other things um, to get up. But he saw he was a, he'd been a Bible worker in the Red Center and um, he was now a pastor in um, a remote town in South Australia and he saw the needs of the people out there. Um, who didn't have, who often didn't have any medical support. Now that's a and so, that's a that's a pretty revolutionary idea. I mean, let's stop and mm. think about 1911. Aircraft have been in existence for, uh, let me work backwards from there for seven years. So seven years mm. after aircraft have been invented, this guy's like, yeah, we need to have aircraft and we need to have a flying <laughs> doctor service. That's pretty revolutionary. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And in um, 1917, he um, had a long uh, letter conversation, correspondence, with someone who had been a pilot in World War One uh, to figure out, you know, what are the possibilities? What, are the, what is the technology capable of? And he also started looking into two-way radio as an innovation that he could use in this service. So from 1911, it took... 17 years until the first flight of the aerial medical service was made. That was made in Queensland. Um, in that time, um, you might have thought, oh, well, Swim the Dreamer, he saw a vision of a flying doctor well before the days of practical flying, but he kept it firmly fixed in his mind, and he was a practical man when the, t- when the time came for action. Yes. So he was, um, he was obviously a, a pastor who was, skilled in administration. Um, he was skilled in publicity and marketing and raising funds. The Flying Doctor Service was a charity and he had to raise all the funds for it himself. Um, and so we see this pastor who's uh, given a special skill by God um, in a similar way to the man who built the Ark of the Covenant, Bazalel, uh, who we read about in Exodus 31. Flynn was uh, given a special gift to do this work you know I've, I've spent a little bit of time in the outback i've worked in the outback on occasions and you know aircraft are one of those it's it's kind of seen as one of those essential tools in the outback these days i mm. think every outback station has you know its own airstrip uh often you know you can be driving down an outback road or even an outback highway and you'll find, you know, the piano keys just painted there on the middle of the road so that the uh, <laughs> flying doctor service can come in. Really? And oh, absolutely. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, to be thinking about this in 1911, mm. that just, this is, this is, that's an incredible thought. I mean, okay, so it took a long time for that to happen. And when you look at the history of aircraft, at the beginning of the First World War, they were very fragile. And even mm-hmm. at the end of the First World War, the First World War really boosted aircraft technology incredibly mm. dramatically. But even still, there is, you know, when you talk about outback flying, 
and the vast tracts of land that you need to cover where, okay, you might be able to put an aircraft down, but you're never going to be able to walk out because there's just, you know, not the water right. available for that. And there's, you know, the story of mm-hmm. stories that of, um, of many aviators who have been lost in the Australian outback because of that. And so, you know, if he if he had been able to start this in 1911 when he first started to think about it, or even at the end of the First World War, you do have to stop and wonder whether or not it would have been premature and more lives could have been lost than been saved. But by the time uh, the story really comes into being, um, as you mentioned here, technology has moved forward and it has, mm-hmm. um, well, look at where the Flying Doctor Service is today. Yeah. Yeah, wow, I'm learning a lot more about aviation than I thought I would. Thank you, Lyle. <laughs> so the first aircraft I used was a, was a um, de Havilland 50 aircraft, light plane, single engine. Um, they leased it on very good terms from Qantas, actually, which was new in the day. Um, the organization, if you think about you know, what was happening in Australia in 1928, well, in 1929, something said in the U.S., that sent shockwaves around the world. The Wall Street crash sparked the Great Depression. Now, in a depression, are people likely to um, give money to charity or are people likely to just be trying to keep their heads above water? It was a miracle that this organization survived the Great Depression. And then afterwards, in 1934, Flynn thought, no, the time is right to look for this to go national. And so um, this, uh, the Flying Doctor took on public support, became a public corporation in 1934, and it's just gone on from strength to strength from there. In fact, Flynn's innovation didn't just stop with the Flying Doctor service. Um, Adelaide Metzger saw what Flynn was doing with two-way radio and actually set up the School of the Air, as she called it, as distance education. So um, for many years, Flynn was really far more than any politician, a representative for people in remote communities um, who didn't necessarily have anyone to speak for them. And this wasn't just, he didn't just care about remote white settlers. Um, he was, he didn't overlook Indigenous people. He devoted the first issue of his magazine in 1915 to photographs and stories of the plight of the fringe dwellers in particular. Um, he said, a blot on Australia is shown on our frontispiece. There is no call for sensation. Sensation is too cheap. We need action. Um, he knew that really everyone was ignorant of how to help, but he said, it is up to us to educate ourselves and mend our ways. He claimed that Indigenous people were neither incompetent nor beneath the practice of self-help. And so he really challenged Australians. He was, um, this pastor, John Flynn, was one of the people speaking at the forefront of um, trying to understand how can we actually help Indigenous communities, remote Indigenous communities. And he challenged Australia, why are we, why are we sending a hundred thousand pounds to Belgium to help people pushed out of um, um, war and so forth in Belgium. But what about in our own backyard? How are we helping the dispossessed in our own backyard? 
And so he um, was a minister, he founded the Flying Doctor Service, and he really pushed Australia to consider our responsibilities when it comes to our own people. And I would say that that's a philosophy that has remained with the Flying Doctor Service. You know, I mean, it's it's gone on from being, um, I, I, I don't think it's something that is, you know, purely supported by donations anymore by any stretch of the imagination, mm. but that philosophy yeah. of being there to help everyone and anyone regardless mm. of, you know, who they are, their background or, or, or whatever it might be is a mm. philosophy that remains to this day. I think... I think that, you know, as I hear this story, I'm hearing the story of somebody who was many, many, many decades ahead of their time. Absolutely. So he's ahead, of his, he's he ahead of his time in 1911. Just just having a conversation about a flying doctor service <laughs> in 1911 for Outback Australia. I mean, how far ahead of your time can you actually get than that? Mm, um, mm. And then to have this philosophy of, of both you know, medical help and, you know, also education and self-help for, you know, Indigenous communities and mm. looking after our own mm-hmm. backyard and taking responsibility for Australians um, yeah. who we haven't sort of necessarily taken, you know, up until that particular point a whole lot of responsibility for, remarkably right. ahead, of his, ahead of his time. It was common enough at the time to recognise the plight of Indigenous people and say, oh, that's really terrible. Someone should do something about that. But Flynn actually, actually did something. He didn't uh, talk down to Indigenous people. He didn't just pity them. Um, he actively did something to support them. And, you know, we might look back and say, oh, Flynn was ahead of his time. Let's think about it from the other direction. Let's look at this from Flynn's perspective. The status quo is no one really goes out of their way to help Indigenous people. The status quo, Flynn decides, is against his moral values. It's against the teaching of Scripture. It's with which you know, Scripture teaches even your enemies um, are worthy of your service. And so Flynn takes this and says, no, this isn't right. And he sticks his neck out and he takes a risk. And the, he became a leader on this issue. And now we can respect that, but at the time, you can just imagine what kind of a difficult situation it would have been for Flynn, what kind of a, a, a difficult decision it would be to make this choice. Yes, indeed. Tell me, with this church pastor, because that's what he is, is a, he's a pastor, mm-hmm. was he also an aviator himself, and did he have any medical background? He um, So in his early years, he took an interest in first aid, but he didn't particularly have a medical background. He wasn't a doctor himself. Um, he wasn't a pilot himself. He, but but rather he saw a need and he had the um, the skills to organise people and to um, administer organisations to get this show on the road. So rather than you know, he he didn't run it on a hands-on way. He wasn't you know flying out to. Um, remote homesteads and doing first aid himself. He was a church pastor. And in fact, in 1939, he became the moderator general of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, which is like the Australian Union Conference president. That's the equivalent. So he was very much, you know, he was 
first and foremost a minister of the gospel. But God had given him these skills in administration, and God had given him a vision for um, practically helping not just the spiritual welfare of outback communities, but their um, physical health as well. So as a as a pastor who's obviously involved in some very big projects, I mean, being the uh, basically the head of the Presbyterian Church in Australia, is carries mm-hmm. with it a lot of responsibility. He gets the Royal mm-hmm. Flying Doctor service started. He gets it up and running. How long does he remain with that before he then passes it on to somebody else? Was this a lifelong project that he stayed with, mm-hmm. or you know, as those other responsibilities came on, did they consume him to the point where he had to pass it on to other people to carry the flag? Right. Well, he he retired shortly before he died, actually, in 1951. He was 70 years old. And I think part of the reason that um, Flynn had so much, though you might think, well, I I couldn't possibly find that much time. But um, part of the reason I think that Flynn had so much time was that he wasn't married. He didn't have children. And actually, it wasn't until he was, he did get married when he was 51, he married the secretary of the Flying Doctor Service, um, Jean Baird. Now, in that way, we see that his um, he had an opportunity to serve in the same kind of way that Paul had an opportunity to serve. Paul said, actually, it's far better not to be married. Paul wasn't married himself. It's far better not to be married because then you get all this time to serve in ministry. But if you really want to get married, then sure, go ahead. Um and so we see, practically speaking, in our own Australian history, this playing out where Flynn was able to make such a huge time commitment because he didn't have those time commitments at home. Mm. Eliza Ma, thank you so much for joining us and te- joining us this morning and telling us a fascinating story about uh, the Reverend John Flynn and the founding of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one eight hundred Faith FM.